I'm David Kenny, and this is Sanity Check. In 25 years of business, I know that hiring people, launching products, allocating capital, selling and managing yourself is no mean feat. We don't tell you what to do. Instead, we put you in front of the right people, ask them the right questions so that you can find the answers you need. We are here for you. It's time to Sanity Check. Welcome back to Sanity Check. Today, I'm super excited because I'm joined by a really good friend of mine. In fact, I remember he used to come to the football quite often, actually, with me when he was living in Australia. And everyone would just come up to me and say, is that so-and-so? I need to speak to him. And I'd say, look, can you just wait till halftime? He just wants to watch the football, you know? So I'm bringing him into Sanity Check. This is the guy that the government wants to talk to. This is the guy, the ASX, global organizations, and this guy is seriously, seriously knowledgeable. But today, we have him here on Sanity Check. So by way of introduction, let's get into the fast five. This time with our guest, the one and only Stephen Fitzgerald. Stephen is the founding and managing partner of Affirmative Investments, the world's first dedicated green and impact bond fund. He was the former chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs Australia, which needs no introduction. He serves on many boards, including QBE, the Great Barrier Reef Foundation. He was awarded an AO medal in the investment management sector and is a member of the Champions of Change founding group which is committed to advancing gender equality. So I hope you can see we have a bit of a theme developing here. This guy cares a lot, not only about the investment banking world, but is also making a positive impact in the process. I'm sure this episode is going to be jam-packed full of goodness. So without further ado, Stephen Fitzgerald, welcome to Sanity Check. David, it's great to be here. Thank you very much on an introduction. That's probably a bit of an underdone introduction for you. Um, but can we start, Stephen, talking a little bit about what's happening in the world? And uh, I remember it was probably, I'm not sure if it was the last time we had dinner, and I said, look, I not that long ago I finished reading Ray Dalio's book, Principles, and you said, oh, I was catching up with Ray the other day. And uh, But to me right now, and you know, we're, we're not seeing this in textbooks. What's going on in the world at the moment is... Pretty odd where you know, we're looking at buying bonds for growth and shares for yield. And Can you maybe share a little bit about how you're seeing what's going on at the moment in the world? Because it's just, you know, you, you're just a wealth of knowledge in this space. And if anyone is an expert, you're pretty close. <laughs> Thanks, David. I'm not sure about that. Um, so I think what is going on in the world is in many ways unprecedented. But when you start to look at the reaction of markets, there are precedents that have been set in previous times. So I think the past still does inform us as to what's going on and the potential outcomes, although the cause of what we're seeing may may well be different. And so when we first moved into this era of the pandemic, um, we saw, I think, very natural reaction from markets to a crisis, albeit the cause of the crisis uh, we haven't experienced in certainly in our lifetimes. But it was very much a world where it was a risk-off world. So people, it was a flight to quality, a flight to you know, U.S. Treasuries, a flight to the dollar, the U.S. dollar. 
the response from governments around the world, again, was unprecedented in terms of the scale of the monetary and the fiscal stimulus. And very quickly, the world reacted to very cheap money and a lot of fiscal stimulus, and it became very much a risk-on environment, credit spreads tightening, equity markets rallying. And, and that's what we've been through for the last 12 months. And I think we are now at a, another inflection point where the governments of the world and central banks of the world now get behind the curve um, and we start to see inflation start to creep into the system. And, and are they equipped after such a long deflationary period to cope with that? And, and, and how do you see, I mean, you're living in the UK, US market's so important, Australian such a small market, but are there, are there things that you think people are getting right or wrong or questions you're still asking yourself about, you know, what, what do we need to do from here to, are we lock-stepping down currency? Are we, you know, in the near future? Or what are, you, what are your thoughts on us? No crystal balls here, but there's not a better person I can think of to have a chat about what is going on. Yeah, well, so my, my view is the rest of the world is um, certainly in the developed markets coming out of the, the pandemic period. Uh, It's based on vaccination, as you're probably aware. Uh, The UK, uh, now 60 million people have been vaccinated. 55% of the population have had their first and 32% of the population have had their second vaccination. Um, And the similar in the US and in Europe. And we are coming out of this period. Uh, Australia clearly lags with only three and a half million Um, having had a vaccination, and there is no clear path for Australia to reopen. Um, So I think Australia does sit uh, as the exception here at the moment. The rest of the world, we're we're seeing seeing the world normalise in terms of economic activity, and there is a lot of savings out there and pent-up demand. And I believe that the big challenge will be how do we wean ourselves off government stimulus when government stimulus, whether it be monetary or fiscal, is no longer required. And that tapering, as they call it, is going to be the challenge for markets going forward, where interest rates, uh, certainly long, longer dated rates, bond yields, start to normalise to whatever normal is these days. Um, and the scale of the fiscal stimulus, which is still there and, and unprecedented, unprecedented scale, starts to be reined back as well. And can the private, private sector demand make up the sort of reduction in, in public sector spending? Let's hope. Let's hope. So speaking of investing and coming from an investment banking background and, and seeing you put this amazing company together, Affirmative Investments and... Uh, what all that is all around is ethical investing, impact investing. Can you give a, I guess, a layman's definition for what this all means? And you know, for starters, just to to get us going on what exactly affirmative investments does. So impact investing is investing for return, but from a universe of investments that, um, through analysis, uh, the investors deem to also have a positive environmental and/or social impact. And it's all about mobilizing mainstream capital for purpose, mobilizing mainstream capital to help the world to deal with issues that it's facing, whether they be climate related or social purpose. And I think it is the 
probably the most exciting area of finance today, that intersection of finance and purpose. It's certainly the area of finance that young people are more interested in and, and some older ones as well, like me. And if the world can truly mobilize mainstream capital and have purpose as well, it is the new paradigm. And so what we do at Affirmative Investments, uh, we're a specialist debt manager. So we invest in debt securities, which are producing mainstream debt returns, but also having a positive environmental and or social impact. And then reporting on that impact. And that impact reporting is absolutely critical to investors. It's the key deliverable for clients because it really is the proof statement as to are you actually having the impacts you expected to have. And so these can be green bonds, they can be social bonds, or they can be sustainability bonds. From a financial perspective, these are just bonds. They are the senior debt of the issuer. They pay a fixed or floating coupon. They mature at par. They're just a bond. And they generally trade at approximately the same yield as conventional securities of equivalent issuers. What makes them green, social, or sustainable is what the proceeds are used for. And so for a green bond, the proceeds need to be segregated for a purpose which has a positive environmental outcome. That could be helping to reduce carbon emissions or adaptation, so creating more resilient communities in the face of climate change. A social bond, exactly the same, except it's got a social purpose. I'll just give an example of a recent social bond, uh, which we invested, in fact, uh, one of the cornerstones, the Africa Development Bank Fight COVID-19 bond. There were a lot of bonds last year that had the COVID label on them some of which had real integrity and some of which perhaps were just relabeling things that were going to happen already. But the Africa Development Bank COVID-19 bond was a bond that was issued by the Africa Development Bank, a AAA rated issuer, where the proceeds of the bond were segregated for the purpose of either building medical facilities to treat COVID patients in African countries or to invest in projects designed to offset or mitigate the negative economic consequence of COVID-19 in African countries. And then in terms of impact reporting, we're getting granular data, for example, on exactly the number of hospital beds being built in Tanzania in COVID wards. So we're getting really good information on what's being done with those proceeds. But from a financial perspective, just the senior debt of Africa Development Bank, three-year bond in US dollars, $3 billion. So it's not really something that is a trade-off to say, I want to return, but I want it to be green or sustainable. It doesn't have to be a trade-off if you know what you're doing. Absolutely not a trade-off. Um, and I think in many ways, it's easier in debt than it is in equity. You do have a yield to maturity in debt, um, and you can compare those yield to maturities. And we do a lot of work around that and fitted curve analysis. There's academic work out there. And the question you're asking is, is there what they call now a greenium? So do green <laughs> bonds trade at lower yields than uh, conventional bonds? And all the work out there suggests, whilst it's a market and things do move around, there's no systemic greenium. And therefore, investors investing in green social or sustainability bonds can generate mainstream returns and have positive impact. A lot of work needs to be done, though, on 
evaluating every issue and issuer with regard to the integrity of the issue and the ESG quality of the issuer, but also on impact reporting because there is greenwashing um, and what they now call color washing around the UN SDGs. So you do have to have a process which looks at the integrity, both of the bond itself and what the proceeds are used for, but also the ESG quality of the issuer. Yeah, so making sure that you know, the money's going where it's intended. But I guess you know, mobilising mainstream capital uh, is something that most people that are you know, not in the position to you know, start to go out and raise a fund because they don't have that experience. What, what drew you to this space? So my, my background is all investment management, less so investment banking, although I worked for an investment bank uh, of which I was very proud for 20 years uh, and remain very proud. But my, my background is investment management. And so I came very much from a mainstream investing background, investing capital on behalf of the largest institutions of the world, pension funds, central banks, as well as individuals through mutual funds, all designed around the single objective of producing good risk-adjusted returns. So very much mainstream. But in the last 10 years, uh, I became more and more interested in that intersection of finance and purpose. And through some of the work, I sit on the board of the Great Barrier Reef Foundation in Australia, recognizing the scale of the challenge that we face in terms of creating a more resilient reef, in that case in particular, the amount of capital that we would need to mobilize really to deal with these issues and do the research and then the implementation was outside the bounds of pure philanthropy. Philanthropy is still going to be a really important element to it. The scale was just greater than philanthropy in Australia could deliver. And it, it all came from a discussion of, you know, is there a way of bringing mainstream capital into this sector? But also, given our backgrounds, you recognise you can only mobilise mainstream capital if you can deliver mainstream returns. So it has to be absolutely return focused uh, in the investment side. Otherwise, it, it essentially is philanthropy, um, and which is terrific, but it's just not going to have the scale and the capacity that the world needs. So that, that's a great point that, you know, most people think of places like the Great Barrier Reef, and if there's money being raised, it's, it's philanthropic, but there's an economic value to the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and we uh, at the Great Barrier Reef Foundation commissioned a piece of research working with Deloitte Access Economics a few years ago, looking at the Great Barrier Reef as an economic asset. And we would never say that the Great Barrier Reef is worth X billion dollars. The value of the reef is immeasurable. But what we looked at was what is the present value of the future economic contribution of the reef to Australia? Whilst we're not saying the reef is worth something, we're saying that the reef contributes uh, significantly and will contribute significantly to Australia over time. And therefore, you can build an investment case for investing money upfront to create a more resilient reef because the payoff over time is going to be very, very significant. The IRR, if you like, on that investment is very, very high. Looking at everything as an economic asset has its risks. The reason that we got comfortable is we do not think looking at the Great Barrier Reef in this example as an economic asset takes away from the environmental or the social value of the reef. But what it does do 
is creates a common language for a discussion around investment. And that really allows policymakers and others to have a framework to make those type of investments and create eventually a more resilient reef in the face of climate change. The other thing with the Great Barrier Reef Foundation and the Great Barrier Reef itself is the Great Barrier Reef sits offshore from a very wealthy country. Yeah, if Australia can't invest and do everything possible to protect and preserve and restore our reef, what hope is there for other countries? And therefore, all the work the Great Barrier Reef Foundation does is open source uh, and applicable to reefs around the world, many of which sit in developing countries, not wealthy countries. One of the pieces of feedback when we did that work from an international investor was if Australia doesn't do everything it can to protect the reef, it will be held to account by public opinion in Australia and elsewhere. And you know, the amount of investment that the government has now put into reef research is, uh, I think, a statement of support for looking at the reef as an economic asset. Well, as it should be. Uh, we've had this conversation. I think internationally we're known to have this, the reef, the roof. Uh, and, the reef, uh, the rock and the house. The reef, the rock and the, and the, and the roof. Reef, rock yeah. and roof, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've got a lot more going down here, but uh, we need to look after that reef. And by being able to reinvent the way people look at in these irreplaceable assets as, as investments as well is um, important work. And I love the fact that you, you've said that that's an open source to the rest of the world. I mean, that's really amazing stuff, as it should be. The one thing I, I would just go on to say on that, David, is you've got to be I think, very mindful about uh, the risks around evaluating everything in terms of dollars. I think it, again, provides a a useful language for a discussion, but the world is not just about the economic value of social programs. It's not just about the economic value of environmental programs. There's a much bigger purpose to what we do, what, what we all do. As I said, it provides that common language as a useful tool, but it is just a tool because we wouldn't want to get to the point where we look at everything through an economic lens uh, and find potential negative consequences of trying to boil everything down to, to money, which is, is just not possible to do. So you're on a lot of boards, Stephen, and, and I think as an exemplary person who is a chairman and has been chairman of some amazing companies, one of the things I think about with chairman is that they're often there to mentor the CEO. What do you see the, the key things in your role as chairman of an organization? Obviously, it depends on what type of company it is, but what do you think of the remit of a chairman these days? David, I think governance is important, and that is for a startup or a, a large company or a not-for-profit for that matter. Governance is, is important, and therefore the role of the board and the role of the chair in that governance um, structure is, is really critical to success. Whilst it doesn't guarantee success, poor governance almost does guarantee um, there will be a problem at some point in the future. So getting governance right 
even in a small company, even in a startup, is really, really important. And it has to be fit for purpose. Um, you're not going to have a very large board for a brand new company, but getting the right people that can bring the right degree of experience, but also challenge and support to the CEO and the executive are, are critical. So I see the role of the board as working with the management in terms of the vision and mission of the company and that long-term vision, that sort of, if you like, as they say, it's a bit overused, but North Star, what are we trying to do in a company? What is the mission of the company? One of the things I would say about affirmative investment management is we have a very clear mission. We know what we're trying to do. We're mobilizing mainstream capital for purpose. And that becomes a really important decision-making tool. And then I think the role of the board is, is really around people and culture. Having at the board level and also in the company, the right culture, a culture which is a culture of success, but a culture of openness, of acceptance, of difference, creating the right atmosphere for people, uh, both for your people internally, but also your external stakeholders is absolutely critical. But if you don't get it right internally, you're certainly not going to get it right from the external world. And, and it's the people inside that will call out gaps in your culture much more quickly than they will be seen um, from, from the outside. The other thing um, on people, I, I, I'm a passionate believer in the importance of diversity, diversity of thought, uh, and diversity manifests itself in many, many ways. As you know, I was early on one of the male champions of change in Australia looking to step up beside women to look at the poor representation of women in leadership in Australia. I think having um, diversity and in particular gender diversity is absolutely critical to success uh, as well as obviously being absolutely the right thing to do. And when we established affirmative, I think we are a little case study, although we're quite small, is when you achieve critical mass in terms of uh, either gender, it just becomes self-reinforcing. You don't have to think about it as much anymore because you create a culture which just supports a gender-balanced organization. And gender is only one lens of diversity, and it's all lenses that we should be looking through. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, getting to a threshold where it sort of self-sustains and supports itself. I think that's a, I've not heard that said before. I think that really resonated with me and hopefully everyone else. But obviously we want to get diversity, but it's obvious when it is the extreme. There's only one person, one female, and there's 10 blokes. But what needs intervention? In terms of any uh, element of diversity, but let's, let's focus on gender. It's not just the overall percentage of men and women in an organization. You have to look at a more granular level than that. It's not just the CEO and the board, it's the CEO minus one, two, and three. Diversity in leadership is really important because if you've got gender balance in your leadership ranks, you will over time achieve gender balance in, in the other ranks as well, particularly if you're recruiting at the graduate level or um, a, a gender balanced workforce. And where companies have generally struggled is in that leadership rank. So we look at the board, we look at obviously the CEO, but then CEO minus one, two, and three. And gender balance broadly we define as 40 to 60% of, of either gender. At, at Affirmative, we are 60% women overall, which would probably be a little bit unusual for financial services. And we're 
at the management committee and 50-50 at the partner level. So I, I feel that we, you know, we pretty much have achieved a decent level of gender balance. But we started with that as an objective and it's one of the starting a, a new firm and this I think is relevant for your uh, the startups that you support, David, is you get very few opportunities in, in a career to start with an entirely blank sheet of paper and say, okay, what is important to us as a group of individuals coming together with a mission? What are the things that we're going to prioritize? And then everything from that, everything you say, everything you do, everything you prioritize will either reinforce that or it will take away from that. But you get very few opportunities in a career to have a completely blank sheet of paper to start with. It's, it's exciting and at the same time, completely terrifying. Everything comes back to people. So when you're looking to hire people, and, and I know you've hired CEOs, I know you've, um, are there any, not, not the technical skills, but what are the types of things that you look at when you're hiring someone for a senior role or for that matter, if you know, I mean, this this analogy could be used by anyone that's looking to find a co-founder or anyone that's looking to find an investor. What are what are these sort of things that you you've talked about governance? What are you looking at? And you're absolutely right. Technical expertise, uh, certainly in particular areas, is, is absolutely critical. But as important, if not more important, is the cultural fit. And and one of the the key questions for me is: this a person that you want to spend a lot of hours with? and be part of a team with? And conversely, does that person feel the same way about the organization? And the way that we uh, approach that uh, in, in our very small organization is that every hire will meet almost everyone in, in the firm. Um, and that's easy when there's only 20, 22 of you. But even in a bigger organization, the more people the candidate meets, not to test their technical skills, but around the fit, investing in that, that person, investing in the time around it, I think is time well spent. Uh, it, it doesn't mean you'll never make mistakes, but it will hopefully reduce the number of mistakes. It also means that everyone that has met that person has a stake in their success. So becomes a supporter of that person. Putting time up front, I think is critical. Yeah, you can't be any smarter than you know, getting the, the lens of you know, the whole team. Um, have there been many situations where you've had to say, look, this is not the right person, even though on paper they're great or, or you've been the odd one out? Yeah, like many times. And, and there have been times where you think they're a great person and they've realized that they're not the right fit for your organization as well. And much better to, to work that out before they're hired than, than afterwards. So, so absolutely. And I think one of the key things in hiring is to recognize that you, know, you do have biases and that those biases are, are not necessarily a good thing, that hiring in your own image is not necessarily a good thing or, or most often is not a good thing. And to embrace difference uh, is absolutely critical. And in an, an organization that is very focused on innovation and leading an industry down a path and constantly looking for better ways, different ways of doing things, if you don't have a diverse workforce that uh, and a culture which allows ideas to percolate up, uh, you will you will fall behind. And the hiring process 
and the culture are absolutely critical to that. How do you sort of manage the, I guess, the overlap between, you know, growing fast and weeding out, you know, people that are problems and dealing with the many issues that do come up in governance, like commissions, sales structures, selling to customers that aren't the outright customers. So there's all sorts of stuff that really goes to governance and balancing all of those things. I mean, this is, I guess, a big part of the role of chairman is balancing all of these pieces. Um, There's a lot of people to keep satisfied and there's not one right answer sometimes. If you've got the right people leading the different functional units, experts in the area, you you need to listen to them and you need to... Uh, recognize that they bring expertise that you don't have. The reason you hired them into that role is because of that expertise. Um, And you as the managing partner uh, need to make sure that they have the right level of authority to execute. Um, And it's absolutely critical. Then there are other decisions which they need to recognize uh, have broader implications. Business selection you referred to, are we managing, are we Um, bringing in the right clients? Are they aligned to our purpose? Are they reputationally enhancing for us? Um, If you create the right dynamic at the management committee, these decisions come up and you can have a broader discussion because they're not a functional decision. They're a a cultural and a business decision. Um, But again, you get the right people in the right seats it's actually quite straightforward. I want to ask you one last question, which is if you lost it all tomorrow and only using the skills you have, what would you, what would you do going forward? What would a fresh start look like? That's a very good question, David. And, and um, if I lost it all tomorrow and, and started again, uh, I think I am passionate about history and the lessons from history. I'm not qualified enough to be a historian uh, in any academic sense or a museum curator. Um, I think I'd be a I'd be a history teacher at school is, is what I would <laughs> well, do. Maybe, maybe I had a, I had a inspiring <laughs> history teacher at Javal High School in Armadale in New South Wales, and uh, he was quirky but inspiring, and it produced a a lifelong passion for history. And I think inspirational teachers are, are so critical to to everything we do. Well, I'm sure you've inspired. You've uh raise some curiosity in lots of people and um, I just wanted to thank you so much for being so generous with your time Uh, it's always good to see you and uh, thank you so much for um, sharing some of that uh, wisdom that's um, very hard to get and uh, I really appreciate it I'm not sure it's wisdom but it's been great to um, to chat with you it's always good to talk to you David thank you I hope you've enjoyed today's episode I did but hey it's not about me if you found it helpful We're only warming up. So if you've got a friend or a colleague who you think needs a sanity check, do them a solid and share this with them. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could give it a review. This will help us reach more people and make sure we get it right for you. I'm David Kenny, and I'll be back in your ears next week for another sanity check and done.